Hey, I'm Vance. Happy October. VegCast. We're coming at you with VegCast 90. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, as always, we have a full menu of vegetarian podcastery coming your way. And this time out, uh, we're going to be talking with Jeffrey Musayef Mason about his new book, uh, Dog Who Couldn't Stop Loving. Called him up in uh, New Zealand and uh, talked for a good long time, so it's a little uh, fuller of a menu even than usual. And uh, we'll be talking about dogs, about companion animals in general, and about animals and humans in in general. And uh, we also have a science fact coming up about cow's milk and the effect that it has on babies in the form of infant formula. Uh, So you'll definitely want to check out that information. And we also will have a a song from a new band, a new uh, band to VegCast, that is, Big Green Cherry, uh, kind of a satirical song. It's called Swim With Satan. Uh, but the Satan is actually a willful mispronunciation of Satan. Uh, so we had that coming up uh, along with all the other stuff. So get ready for that full menu. Pull up a chair, relax, and crank up your MP3 playing device as we deliver to you this 90th edition of All right, as you know, VegCast is sponsored by Light Life, makers of Smart Dog, Smart Ground, and more. Visit them at lightlife.com. Veggie goodness for you and the planet. And we will get now right into our interview with Jeffrey Musayef Mason. Uh, If you're not familiar with any of his 25 books that he's written uh, prior to this one, uh, some of the uh, better known are The Face on Your Plate, Uh, When Elephants Weep, The Pig Who Sang to the Moon. He has been a pioneer in the field of writing about animals and their interior lives uh, to the extent that we can tell anything about them uh, and basically making the case for animals as persons. Uh, And this latest one, uh, we, we will talk about what is going on with that. And uh, I just wanted to comment before he says it that he talks about being interviewed on a vegan radio station, which VegCast now has become with the way that the web has altered radio itself. uh, I am going to lay claim to that title proudly. And uh, so from now on, we're going to, uh, yeah, we're going to call it VegCast Radio. But uh, in the meantime, Let's get to our conversation with Jeffrey Musayev Mason. Okay, right now on VegCast, we are speaking with Jeffrey Musayev Mason, uh, the author of The Dog Who Couldn't Stop Loving. Jeffrey, thanks for talking with us on VegCast. It's a pleasure, Vance. And as I was uh, saying before we start recording, I have uh, read a couple of your uh, previous works. Um, Notably, I mean, the big hits, I guess we could call them, When Elephants Weep, uh, The Pig Who Sang to the Moon. Is this, I assume this is uh, going to be somewhat in, in the same vein, but the fact that you're talking about a dog makes me wonder if you're, you're moving uh, away from animals who are in domestic 
food situations, uh, as in the pig who sang it to the moon, or entertainment uh, situations to to those who we uh, we actually have in our home. Is that a, is that a uh, correct assumption? I sense that what you're asking there is a profound question, namely. I think I've gone on record as saying that no domesticated animal uh, gets a great deal from humans. Right. Uh, that is, that we don't, it's not fair to them, to put it bluntly, to any of them. And I would stick with that. However, I think the two near exceptions are dogs and cats. And um, that is under ideal conditions. Uh -huh. Dogs and cats are the only animals, I believe, that can live with us in some kind of egalitarian situation. It's not true of birds, obviously, because we have to cage them. And it's certainly not true of any animal that we eat or any animal whose young we take away or any animal whose skin we use or fur or, in short, any animal really, except dogs and cats, any animal on the farm is there to be killed and eaten or at least their eggs are to be used, and that to me is pure exploitation. I haven't changed my mind about that at all, and I intend to come back and write more about it. This was a kind of interlude for me, because I do love dogs uh, to distraction, as, as do a lot of animal rights activists, and I, I sometimes wonder, why do we do this? What mm -hmm. is it about dogs, especially given our position that many of us have, if not most of us, that all animals are exploited by humans, how then do we bring dogs into our home and keep them from being exploited? Okay. So it, it is a question that every vegan especially has to ask himself or herself because so many of us vegans do live with companion animals. Yeah. And I think that the, the explanation that most of us give is, well, we're, we're rescuing an animal, and I totally agree with that. If we rescue an animal, if we take an animal out of a place where they're going to be harmed or hurt or killed or euthanized, then of course we're doing a service. But there's still the larger philosophical question of it. Can we really justify having an animal who is under our control living with us when we hold the beliefs we do? And many, some vegans at least would say, no, we shouldn't have any animal living with us. Uh, it's not that I disagree with that. It's just that I can't not live with a dog. What's and, up? and I guess the, and the reason for that is that um, I, I do believe there is something very special in the way we live with dogs, that, that we have a relationship with them that is unparalleled uh, anywhere else in nature. Okay. But... If I'm right, the, the focus of the book is, though, is on companion animals, especially dogs, and our relationship with them. Yes, that's right. This is a book about not focusing on dogs, exclusively about dogs. It's about the dog that, I, that our family now lives with, whose name is Benji. And Benji was a, a guide dog who didn't make it, failed for all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. And he's now living with our family. He's been with us for almost three years now. And I noticed that he had an extraordinary ability to love all other creatures. He loves dogs. He loves people. He loves cats. He loves our little rat that we live with. He likes chickens. Uh, he's never met an animal that he doesn't immediately like. Right. And 
that set me to wondering about this. Why is it that only two animals on our planet, namely humans and dogs, consistently and reliably form strong attachments to members of other species? I mean, it happens once in a while with a cat or a goat or a horse, but it's, it's not as usual as it is with dogs. And in asking that question, it led me into a whole new field that's become quite popular really in the last year or two, I would say. Namely, there is the belief of many scientists working in the field that there has been a kind of mutual domestication between dogs and humans. And I carry that just one step further and say, I believe that, but not only do I believe that we've mutually domesticated one another, but also I go out on a limb and suggest that dogs have actually taught us and we have taught them. So it's a give and take uh, to have this kind of friendly relationship with other animals. And, and that is that, that's the great advantage, it seems to me, of living with a dog, especially a dog that's been well socialized and enjoys um, the company of lots of other animals. I think this is a wonderful thing for children. I think it's a wonderful thing for older people. And it's been a wonderful thing for me. Well, let me just, uh, you know, kind of play devil's advocate. If Going back to your initial thing about how this is all based on a, a kind of out-of-balance situation and in an individual case, we can say, well, we're rescuing this particular animal, so uh, that's great. But, um, you know, obviously down the road, if it should happen that uh, humans stopped their practice of breeding animals uh, to serve as pets, uh, and the, the institution of companion animals died out, would you still, if you're, you know, around and, and making a case at that point? Would you still make the case that it is mutually beneficial and that we should continue that institution? No, absolutely not. There, I, I, I would agree with, I think, the point that you're leading to is that if it were to disappear, would it not be better for all parties? Look, Benji has the most ideal life that any dog could have, but it's still the life that I choose for Benji. Um, for example, we, I just took him to visit my 92-year-old mother. Right. And for some reason, he's not keen on walking. He doesn't like it. He doesn't like walking up the hill. It's a very steep hill. We live at the bottom on a beach, and he has to walk up through this forest. And most dogs would give anything to do that, not Benji. <laughs> he doesn't like doing it, and yet I force him to do it. I put him on a leash, and I say, come on, we're going. He needs the exercise. And it's wonderful when he gets there. He's so friendly to all these um, people in their 90s. They love to see him. So I make him do it. The point is he's not doing what he wants. He's doing what I want. Right. And he's an adult. He's not a child. And I can't really justify that, you see. Okay. And I think that and it's always the case. We remove the sexuality of dogs, of course. We have to. Uh, we put them on leashes. We, the commands we give them are very simple, but they usually involve no, leave it, come. In effect, we're telling them, do as I tell you to do. Right. Now, if we did that with another adult, that adult, if we were married to somebody like that, they'd divorce us immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if Benji 
probably divorce me. Well, we would hope not. But what I mean is he wouldn't in this particular case because he'd say, okay, so I'm on a leash and I don't like it, but who's going to give me a better life? But surely Benji would be better off as a wolf in the wild. Hmm. And all animals are better off in the wild doing what they evolved to do. You know, they, uh, there's this very simple phrase, you probably read about it in, in When Elephants Weep, but I've always loved it. It's, it's the German phrase, Funktionslust. And it means taking pleasure in what we do best. Right. And it's a very important concept, and it's true of humans, and it's true of animals. And, for example, to declaw a cat is an abomination because cats like to use their claws. They climb trees, they protect themselves, they need it. So to take that away from them is to take away their ability to engage in natural behavior. Right. And you could argue that Benji is deprived of his natural activity, which in this case happens to be lying around in the sun all day. <laughs> That's what he wants to do. And I don't let him do that. So he's not able to lead the life that he would choose for himself. We don't really want to do this for a creature who has equal interests in the way that we do. We don't do this to our wives and we don't do this to our friends. We do it to our children, but only for a brief time, and even then imperfectly, and only with their great protestation, as I know, having a 14-year-old and a 9-year-old, two, two sons, I know <laughs> right. how difficult it is to make them do what they don't want to do. All right. Well, then, let me flip that the previous question around, then, when you were talking about this concept of mutual domestication. Um, how, I mean, I, I assume that there are some... Uh, scientists, biologists, anthropologists, or whatever, who who have some kind of data on this, but I would have to ask, how can we, how could we, how would we be in a position to judge this objectively, and and say that it's actually, you know, it was actually a mutual, mutually beneficial process, or or that we are both acting equally on each other when there's always been this power dynamic. We've always been able to tell the animals that we're domesticating what to do, and they haven't been able to tell us what to do. Yeah, no, that, that's a, it's a perfectly valid objection. I think what they're saying, the scientists who are interested in this, are saying that the age differential between dogs and any other domesticated animal is so great that something unique had to happen between the two species. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that every other animal, I mean, sheep and, and, and pigs and chickens and so on, they've all been domesticated not a very long time. At the most, I think it's about 8,000 years. Dogs, at a minimum, goes back 15,000. And I think most scientists would now prefer the figure of 40,000 years. And there are few scientists who are insisting that it goes back even further, uh, up to 120,000 years. Now, if that's the case, uh, which I think it is, I, I, you know, I would stick with the 40,000, but even 15,000, it means that we have, before we were um, engaged in agriculture, we had dogs living with us. Mm -hmm. So when we were just nomadic hunter-gatherers, we were accompanied by dogs. No other animal was with us. And I think their point, and I would agree with it, is that something terribly important happened between humans and dogs to make to, to allow this to happen. In other words, we didn't set out to domesticate wolves. Wolves, for some reason, chose to live around us. 
mm-hmm. and then chose to, to be with us on a, on a pretty constant basis. So we're the only two species that you find everywhere in the world. There's no landmass in the world today without dogs and humans. Hmm. That's not true of any other animal. Okay. Well, let me, let me just take off from that, and I know we're about out of time, but um, I have to say, you know, I, I uh, read When Elephants Weep uh, a while ago, and it, it really had uh, gotten me to start thinking about uh, things in a certain way. Um, I forget if I had just become vegetarian or I was just going vegetarian at that time. Of course, I've since gone vegan, but uh, one, you know, one of the things that it really points out is kind of our our tunnel vision, our, our kind of uh, egocentrism in always looking at, at at animals lives through our own lens and how you know how we want them to be how we want to see them how they relate to us rather than necessarily being able to see them on their own terms and i just wonder if it almost sounds like another one of those humans are the only animals that do such and such uh when you say this about humans and dogs i'm wondering might there (laughs) might there actually be other species that are uh that are getting along with each other that are i mean there are certain Aquatic species, where there is interspecies uh, association, symbiotic association uh, that that happens, but you know that's because we know that because we happen to have found that and observed it. But I'm wondering, might there actually be stuff out there that we we just don't yet know enough about, and so might it might we want to back off on you know being very absolute about saying this relationship is unique in the animal kingdom. Yeah, excellent point, Vance. You're, you're totally right. Um, absolutely correct. And in fact, you know, I think over the next 50 years, one of the most interesting things will be for us to start discovering ways in which we're not unique. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, uh, every time we've ever said we're unique in some way, it, it gets shot down. Right. And here I am in this new book saying we're the only two animals that you know, make friends across the species barrier, and probably 20 years from now we'll discover not true at all. Orcas make friends with with dolphins or whatever. We don't know that at present, but you're absolutely correct to stress that we don't know very much right now. So who are we to say that there aren't giraffes in the in in the forest that are hang out with elephants? Nobody's seen it to date, but that doesn't mean much. Right. And you're right to stress the aquatic environment. Because we know we know so little about what goes on in the ocean, especially with so-called higher beings like orcas and, and other whales and, and dolphins. We just don't know what they do. We do know that unlike us, they've managed not to commit genocide on any other on, on their own kind. You know, no orca has ever killed another orca in the wild as far as we know. Right. That's an extraordinary thing, nor have they ever killed a human in the wild, right? Uh, and that we definitely know. So in some ways, orcas are definitely our moral superior. Now, whether they feel the need to make friends with other animals, maybe they do, and maybe they just don't need it. Maybe they're so far beyond us, they say, oh, it's just a typical ego trip on the part of humans, <laughs> Yeah. And we don't need it. We can leave other animals be what they are. That yeah. really would. I take your criticism um, with good humor. I think it's entirely well aimed and absolutely correct. I, have... well, I didn't mean it as a criticism. It was more of a uh, just a, a kind of a 
I guess, a leading question. But it is something that... You know, but it's, it's a very good question and an important one, and it's not one that I address in the book. Um, and it, it's one that, you know, we vegans can use amongst ourselves because <laughs> um, we have a certain position. Right. You know, and, and what I'm saying to you is not something that would appeal to most dog lovers. And in that <laughs> sense, it, this, this book really is directed to dog lovers, and vegans like you will have these perfectly valid objections. On the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if, I don't know, what, 80% of all vegans live with some animal. Do you live with an animal? Sure. Ah, there we go. See? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... In the, meantime, in the meantime, it's an interesting thing to consider. I'm just so curious why there is something very special about dogs and humans. I do live with cats. We have four cats living with us. I've got a rat right now on my shoulder. I adore these other animals, but it's not the same, and it's just worth thinking about in some depth. And, and so far, the evolutionary biologists have not done that. They've, they've kind of given us a clue, but they don't like to look at, at in, in greater depth because they're afraid it's going to lead to certain implications about what we eat, and only we vegans are willing to take that step. All right. Well, I'm, very glad, I'm very glad that my very first interview about this book happens to be with a vegan radio station. <laughs> well, I'm glad to, glad to be, uh, be able to be on the other side of that. And uh, we are out of time now, and uh, I'm going to have to wrap this up. But I, I should just ask, I mean, you, uh, you know, you, you've done different kind of classes of animals, at least as we classify them in relation to, to us. And now you, you are talking about animals that, that we live with. Um, where do you go next? I mean, you've, you, I, I wonder if you're, you're running out of entire uh, areas of the animal kingdom that you can apply your, your fresh eye to. Or do you have uh, anything else that you're, that you're cooking up after this book? I do have. I, I, I just signed a contract with Bloomsbury in New York to write a book with a rather highfalutin title and I hope I'll change the title, and some of your listeners might give me some good ideas. For the moment, it's called um, Apex Predator, Orcas, Humans, and the Origins of Good and Evil. Uh -huh. And it, it relates to the last topic we were talking about, um, that it really piqued my curiosity. Why is it that orcas and other predators, by the way, not just orcas, wolves, uh, even bears and lions, the big cats, they don't seem to engage in the kind of horrendous practices that humans do. So the question is, what happened to our species? Hmm. Why are we so predatory on such a wide range of animals when no other animal is? Other animals, they kill to eat. We kill for fun. We kill out of malice. We kill for pleasure. And I'm just trying to understand that. So that, that's my next book. Yeah, well, that sounds fascinating. I hope uh, we'll be able to talk about that when that comes out. But for now, it's uh, The Dog Who Couldn't Stop Loving, uh, Jeffrey Musayev uh, Mason. It's from uh, HarperCollins, and uh, that will be coming out within days of this, uh, of this podcast being out. And, Jeffrey, I've I got to say I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me from, from New Zealand. How, how's the weather over there? <laughs> It's a beautiful sunny day, and tomorrow we're leaving for a snow trip. We're going to go skiing with our two boys. Great. All right. Well, I hope you have a great time, and I hope we will be able to check back in with you uh, later about, uh, about the Orcas and Predators book. 
But until then, I got to say just uh, thank you for talking with us on VegCast. Fantastic, Vance. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Swim with Satan, in parentheses, Let's Compromise, by Big Green Cherry. Uh, it was sent to me by Ed Welsh, who used to be in the band Floored on Empty, which you may remember from VegCast 55. And if you don't remember it, you can always find all of our previous episodes, of course, at VegCast.com. You can go back and listen to it there about this song. Ed Welsh says that it's a parody of how outsiders sometimes view vegetarians and our politics. So I hope you enjoyed that, but now we have to turn from politics to the science fact. Our science fact for VegCast 90 is bottle milk makes babies obese. And this is from UK Daily Express. Uh, about a study by a team at University College London Institute of Child Health. Uh, as the story recounts, they believe their findings have important implications for babies fed formula milk as they tend to put on weight more quickly than breastfed babies. This is because formula milk is made from cow's milk 
which is much more energy-dense than human milk. Researchers found that babies who were small at birth and were fed enriched formula milk gained weight at an accelerated rate. The story continues that Professor Atul Singhal from the MRC Childhood Nutrition Research Center at University College London, who led the study, said, What we suspect is that if you put on weight too fast in infancy, you program your appetite to be greater. In the last decade, formula milk firms have worked hard to reduce the protein and calorie content of their product. But Professor Singhal said it would not be possible to make it as perfect for a growing child as breast milk. He added, in public health terms, it supports the case in the general population for breastfeeding since it is harder to overfeed a breastfed baby. And then at the bottom of the story... Uh, I find this interesting. It notes that the latest findings come after infant growth charts used by health visitors had to be ditched as they were based on the weight gain of babies fed formula milk. It meant that for years, breastfeeding mothers worried their babies were not gaining weight fast enough when they were actually developing at a normal rate. So on that last point, uh, it seems that the norm, what was actually normal, was being called abnormal because it was being held up against standards of something that really is abnormal and unhealthy. Uh, I think there's kind of a lesson for us all in that. And in case you're not completely up on the whole concept of what is in cow's milk and why it's unsuitable for babies and grown-up humans, uh, it also, in addition to a higher protein and fat uh, content and calorie content, uh, it contains growth hormones that are specifically designed to make uh, a the young mammal grow, just as uh, our human breast milk contains growth hormones. But uh, this is something designed to make a young calf grow into a 400-pound cow. So we should not be surprised if those uh, have a little bit of a uh, deleterious effect when they're being applied to a different kind of animal. And that's just one of the many reasons... Uh, that we find it somewhat bizarre to push the drinking of cow's milk on humans in any way, shape, or form when you take a look at the science fact. All right, we're already over the 30-minute mark, and of course, this being VegCast Radio, trying to fit into the uh, playlist format, so I'm going to just wrap this up right here and now. I would like to thank the sponsor of VegCast Radio. That is Light Life. Light Life makes eating veggie deliciously easy. Join us and be pro-veggie. And, of course, I also want to thank Jeffrey Musayef Mason for talking with us from New Zealand about the dog who couldn't stop loving. And uh, thanks to Ed Welsh for sending us that song and keeping us up to date on uh, Big Green Cherry. And, of course, I also want to thank you, the VegCast listener, for listening and hopefully subscribing to VegCast. Now, till next time, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.